tonight on Arena. Ballet Ireland present Bizet's Carmen in ballet form and we review all the light we cannot see on Netflix. You can text us on 51551 or tweet at RTE Arena. Ballet Ireland celebrates its 25th anniversary this autumn by going on the road with Carmen, the tale of doomed love between the beautiful free-spirited heroine and Jose, a naive young soldier. Thelia Sendoya and Dominic Harrison lead a cast of 12 dancers in a 10-venue tour from Antrim and Armagh via Dublin and Wexford to the West Coast. Choreographer Morgan Reneker temple is a regular collaborator with Ballet Ireland and she brings a modern twist to this iconic work. John Walsh brings his flamenco guitar. He's created a new arrangement that will alternate with a reworking of George Bizet's score. I'm delighted that John Walsh and his guitar is with me in studio and Morgan Runiker Temple is on the line from London. John, have you just returned from the rehearsal room? Yeah, we were in um, another set of intense rehearsals for the day, yeah. So. Right, and what's it like to be in a rehearsal room with a group of dancers? Um, pretty inspirational, really. They're, they're amazing dancers and the choreography, I think, is wonderful. So, uh, yeah, pretty inspiring, really. Morgan, about that choreographer, uh, choreography, you're no stranger to making traditional work like Cinderella and Romeo and Juliet with new twists. How did you approach this version of Carmen? Well, um, I think pre- choosing to present Carmen, which is, you know, one of the most famous and popular opera stories, um, choosing to present it in 2023 um, is is for me already an interesting decision because um, when when she was when it was written the story uh, the character of Carmen was kind of considered so um, so obscene as as a representation of a woman that they really struggled to find an opera singer who was willing to take on that role on stage um, and that's because she's this you know extremely um, strong-willed, free-spirited person who really lives life by her own rules, um, the rules by which the men in the piece live their lives. Um, And and she's kind of, uh, she's very unapologetic in this fact. And um, uh, in the end, um, she ends up being killed by her her lover, which I think probably for audiences at the time um, would have, you know, would have seemed like a kind of deserving punishment. But I think, of course, in 2023, we read this piece very, very differently. And um, it's we'll look at the character of Carmen um, with totally fresh eyes and and different expectations. And so I think as a choreographer, um, choosing to kind of present this character of Carmen is really exciting uh, woman who's who's. um, very, very passionate and also really kind of knows who she is. Um, I think that's a really interesting challenge. And we've really uh, we've really kind of zoomed in on the story of of her and Jose and how their love uh, just it's sort of it's a very, very passionate story, but it, it begins to disintegrate. And Jose is not able to accept that. And, and Carmen, um, Carmen won't be um, 
won't be possessed by anybody. Um, so it has quite a tragic ending. And, and now, obviously, it's written by a French composer, but it's um, a Spanish story. So uh, what brought you to the flamenco guitar when you were chore- choreographing the uh, the production? Um, I think, well, we're also using some... Uh, music by Shedrin um, and he made a kind of reorchestration or reworking of the original Bizet score and that's quite percussive um, it's got quite a lot of percussive elements in it and um, I was really interested in uh, the flamenco guitar as as a uh, as an instrument and as a kind of form of music and I I started kind of researching because the, the Shedrin score is just 40 minutes long and this is a full evening and so I started researching other music that could sit alongside that and um, and then I was I was kind of pointed in the direction of John, who um, John Walsh, um, who uh, who and, and we met up and we started talking about about the score and about uh, about the, the project. And it kind of through our discussions, it you know it, it became clear that it would be it would be a really exciting collaboration to have live guitar on stage um, along with the re- the recorded music, and that these two things could go quite well together because in some places. Uh, John uses the guitar quite uh, almost as percussion, which kind of ties in well with the score and also sort of melodically and harmonically. And I'm sure he'll he'll talk more about that. But it, it seemed like uh, it seemed like a, a good fit. And also because of the the Spanish um, Spanish influence in, this, in the the original music and and kind of bringing that out with a flamenco guitar. And it's got really strong ties with dancing. And we use we use um, clapping palmas in the show as well. So. Uh, it, it seemed like a good fit. Um, John is indeed here with us and he has his guitar. But first of all, talk about, John, if you would, the Shedron uh, version of Carmen's. Yeah, so when I was <clears throat> approached first about or the idea began about him um, doing um, some sort of guitar adaptations of Bizet's music, I don't know, I was a bit um, apprehensive, we'll say. The themes are so famous it's hard to know what exactly to do with them. Um, but when I heard the Shedron then, it's so interestingly reharmonized. It's The arrangements are, are very, very interesting. It's done with a huge amount of strings and percussion, predominantly strings and percussion. Um, it was done in the mid-20th century, so there's a lot of sort of contemporary compositional elements in it. And... Um, I don't know, I just felt a little bit freer, maybe, to work alongside that than I would if it was just a straight-up traditional Bizet well, Carmen. Well, the Habanera, of course, is is the opening um, b- b- aria from Carmen. And here is uh, Shedron's version of the Habanera. Very Precursive, isn't it? Just great. Uh, what what instruments is he using there, John? Oh, there's well, I mean, there's a huge amount of strings and timpani mm-hmm. and large drums, and it's just it's it's fairly full on in parts. It's interesting because other elements of the arrangement are very stripped, stripped bare almost, very minimalist with a lot of bells, and um, it's um, I don't know, it's a very it's, it's extremely atmospheric. Now, introduce your habanera because you have done a version of uh, of of Bizet's, or is it Bizet's and and Shedron's, <laughs> or your very own? 
Well, it's the melody, obviously, mm -hmm. from You Can't Really... So I have messed a little bit with it, but not too much. Um, I really got inspired by it when I heard, um, when I was listening to the Shedron music originally. There was some very interesting reharmonizations in it. It reminded me a lot of um, some of the kind of work that John Coltrane and others were doing back in the day. Um, so yeah, I just, I, I kept for the most part the main melody. I got rid of the kind of ostinato bass pattern, the, the repeating bass. It's a more ethereal sort of sounding effect that I was going for and the kind of some harmonic changes and stuff throughout. Okay, well, let's hear that version now. John Walsh's arrangement there of Carmen's The Habanera, a part of Ballet Ireland's 25th anniversary production of Carmen that's going on a nationwide tour. So, John, you're going to bring us into the nuts and bolts of what you did there. Well, <clears throat> obviously, keep... With the guitar, obviously. With the guitar, OK. So there's the... I want to set a sort of an, atmos an atmosphere from the beginning, to set the show off of what's to be kind of expected. So this type of uh, blanket sounding effect. Scene setting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to emulate a little bit of the bell work of Shedron here with... But with a dark change that comes. I find the it's obviously the subject matter is quite dark. I kind of wanted to reflect that, but not not too heavy. So the um, the main the main melody, of course, it's uh, it's keeping the male elements of it, but kind of changing changing the harmonic, the the chordal structure underneath. Um, it's not as um, there's a sort of a, a static harmony in the original Carmen, uh, in the original um, Bizet Habanera, um, which is wonderful in its effect. But I just wanted to sort of take it in a slightly different, maybe unexpected direction. 
And Morgana, what do you do then in terms of what what do we see on stage as John is playing that, setting the scene there in that very dramatic way and then bringing it all down a bit and just picking out those kind of bell sounds? Well, the first the first thing we see is yeah we see we see John on stage because he's he's um he's performing live with the dancers which I think is um something that's really exciting for 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 all of the dancers that they have this kind of live interaction with him and there's there's a, a real play between John and the dancers um, but what we see on stage in that moment um, the character of Jose is is inside uh, the the set which is, which is a kind of uh, cube. Um, which can be transformed into different things. But in this moment, it gives the impression of the cell. Because in the original story, in Merrimay's story that Carmen was based on, uh, it's all told from the cell of, of Jose as he's awaiting execution for the, for the murder of Carmen. So we're kind of, we're almost looking through, looking through his memory of it. And we, we come back to that image several times during the production. And then you have, I mentioned the lead dancer, that's uh, Thelia Sandoya and then Dominic Harrison. Dominic played mm. Jose previously. What have you changed about the relationship between Carmen and Jose in this production? Yeah, so, uh, so yeah, Dom was in the original production when we made it Um the first time round, sort of nearly well 10 years ago so it's been really wonderful to come back and and revisit that role and that character in particular um you know 10 10 years on uh dom 10 years on as a dancer and me 10 years on uh, as a choreographer so that that was um it was a, a kind of good opportunity to to relook choreographically and 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 movement wise at at what how that character was moving and and kind of re uh, re-explore a little bit um how how we kind of track uh how we track this character's fall from this kind of young soldier who has got everything everything lined up for him he's got a a girlfriend who he really loves and he has this career in the army and just through a series of of, of bad choices and um bad choices and i guess uh sort of moments in time of meeting this woman that he loves his life just starts to spiral out of control and by the end of the piece he's um he's he's in this totally sort of different state from from how we see him at the beginning so we really needed to try and uh really kind of make that character arc and that journey feel really clear um so it was quite interesting to to come back to that um and And i think the the relation Sorry, Morgan. Sorry. Uh, then the da- the dance we'll see is that flamenco in nature or ballet in nature or a mix. Uh, it's it's a mix. Well, the, the dancers are all classically trained, and I would say that the 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 vocabulary that's based on is quite classical, but um, it also has a lot of contemporary elements in in the way that they move. Um, and we have a scene in it, uh, which is when they're in the tavern. The, the end of Act One, which is really like a, a, a sort of party, and um, we wanted to to have we wanted to have this kind of interaction between John and the dancers on stage, and it feels quite spontaneous. And the dancers are doing a lot of um, palmas, so they're they're clapping, so they're accompanying each other sort of percussively and accompanying John as well. Um, which that that's got quite sort of strong flamenco elements, but choreographically, it's it's classical and, and a little bit contemporary as well. Well, it sounds like a fascinating production and should be a great nationwide 
tour. John Walsh, thank you so much for coming in. And Morgan Reneker Temple, thank you. Ballet Ireland's Carmen goes on a nationwide tour from the 9th of November to the 8th of December. Venues all over the country, the Lime Tree in Limerick, Glower in Ennis, the Civic in Talla, Driocht in Blanchardstown, the Town Hall in Galway and uh, the National Opera House in Wexford. Full details on balletireland.ie. You're listening to Wednesday Night's Arena. Based on the Pulitzer Prize winning novel of the same name, All the Light We Cannot See is a new four-part series that premieres on Netflix tomorrow. Set during World War II, the series centres around Marie Laurie, a French teenager who is blind but thought to be resourceful by her loving father. As the Germans invade France, Marie Laurie and her father leave Paris to take refuge with relatives in the coastal town of Saint-Malo. Her father disappears. Then she starts broadcasting on her uncle's old radio. Let's hear a clip now. Papa, Uncle Etienne, if you can hear me, please come home. The bombs are falling now and I think the Americans have come to free us at last. Uncle Etienne... It's not just that I'm alone here. I'm also very worried about you. You said you would be gone for one hour, but it's been days. If you're hiding from the German soldiers, use the bombs to get back home. And Papa, you said you would be gone for six days. It's been more than a year. But wherever in the world you are, if you can hear me, I love you. A clip there from All the Light We Cannot See. Marie Laurie played by Aria Mia Loberti and uh, the uh, she's broadcasting there and Chris Wasser has been seeing, has seen the series. Chris, this uh, All the Light That We Cannot See is based on a very successful but more importantly a very much loved novel. Yes, that's right, yeah. Uh, uh, tell us a little about it. Set yeah. the scene for us. Oh, the novel mind. was um, published, uh, uh, written by the American author Anthony Doerr and when it was released it was the subject of uh, extraordinary critical acclaim um, uh, d- described as you know beautiful and expansive and, and lyrical d- in its style and its structure and presentation uh, spent half a year on the New York Best Times best, uh, on the New York Times bestseller list um, sold 50 million copies and eventually won the Pulitzer Prize so there must be something special about this and certainly the setup is is, is something different you heard there um, the, uh, the, the, the the French teenager broadcasting uh, radio trans transmissions from this house that's falling around her in 1944 in this small seaside town St. Malo in France and what's happening is that the year is 1944 the Allied forces are moving in on Nazi on this Nazi occupied area and they're sending out messages to the residents that if you can evacuate because we are going to bomb so we have this young resistance fighter who's essentially doing the work of her uncle and doing some work on behalf of her father 
reading chapters and passages from Jules Verne's uh, 20,000 Leagues Beneath, uh, Under the Sea that Which are actually... she reads through Braille. She reads through Braille, yes. And there are coded messages in these chapters and she's kind of been reading the same pages over and over again. Um, and she hopes that, you know, she can, you know, help by doing this, but also maybe, you know, let her uncle and her father know who are missing and have been for a long time that she's still here and, you know, she to, to, to come back to her, basically. On the other side of the town, then, you have this young German soldier who is kind of depicted as you know, inverted commas, the good Nazi of the peace. And what I mean by that is he's a youngster who has been forced to join the German soldiers against, you know, and to sacrifice his ideals and to sacrifice his soul because the series does work very hard to kind of show you that there were kids around this time who were made to do things that they didn't want yes, to. Yes, because you know? it's, it's told in different timelines and we see the very young Werner yes. as he's, he's an orphan. He and his sister are orphaned. And so they're easy prey for the Nazis if they have any kind of skill set. Absolutely, yeah. And this fella, uh, he knows his way around the radio from a very young age. And he loves these educational broadcasts that are uh, uh, put out by this uh, uh, mysterious kind of uh, uh, professor, you know, radio presenter who teaches kids about, you know, the universe and science and all the light that they cannot see, which is where where it gets its title. Um, And he doesn't know that this girl transmitting the broadcast that he has kind of stumbled upon in his radio work for the Nazis. He doesn't know that, you know, she has some sort of connection with this show as well. So as I say, he's on the other side of the town. He is trying to, you know, intercept radio, you know, coded radio uh, 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 transmissions for the Germans. He stumbles upon this and he is so kind of taken back by these broadcasts, the first one that you heard back at the, at the top of the item, um, that he decides to protect this girl, to kind of go against his superiors. So we're rooting for this character and the series kind of shows us all of the things that happened to him that he was, you know, forced to be in the position that he's in. Yes, and even though he is picked out because of his skills with a radio and sent to this specialist Nazi school. Mm. Is there any sense that he embraces Nazi ideals? Not yet, anyway. So I have seen three parts of this four-part series um, and the reason I said at the top inverted commas, the good Nazi of the piece is because on the other side then we have this over-the-top kind of, you know, uh, evil uh, a soldier who's out to try and find uh, a gem that uh, uh, Marie Laurie's father has in his possession. And um, so we see that this is a guy who just kills everyone that crosses him and just will stop at nothing, you know, to, to get what he wants. And um, when it comes to Werner, we, we see that, you know, he has killed people, but the people that I've seen him kill in the first three parts are the soldiers around him because, as I say, he's trying to protect, you know, the, the, this French teenager. He's trying to protect her family. So, as I say, the story is very much going out of its way to say this guy is being forced to do something he doesn't want to and and we should root for him. Okay, so let's play another clip now. As you mentioned, the bad Nazi and he's uh, some creation really. He's he's Nazi Sergeant Major von Rumpel and he's played by Lars Edinger and anybody who knows that actor knows that he... Joy is his joy in life is to play over the top yes. characters. So here we are. He's gulping down oyster, and he tells the waiter what he's doing in San Malo. I'm not here to execute the war. I'm a jeweler. My job is to track down and identify all the finest jewels in Europe and deliver them to the Führer. Since almost all of the other jewelers in Germany were Jewish. And since the Reich, in its endless wisdom, has decided to gas, shoot, hang and starve all the Jews of Europe to death, I'm the only one of my profession still at large. And a 
in pursuit of my mission, I'm here in this ill-fated city. To find someone who I believe has something that I want. A girl. A blind girl. Who I know is in Samalo. Lars Edinger there playing Nazi Sergeant Major von Rumpel, who is scoffing the scenery as much as yes, the oysters, yeah. I think. But um, OK, so it's a star cast mm-hmm. with um, two new stars as well in the making. Tell us about the stars and then tell us a little bit about what you taught about this. Yeah, I mean, because it's very it's precarious, isn't it? it Making is something that is so loved by other people. Yeah. So you have Lars Eidinger there playing uh, uh, the villain of the piece, very much in a sort of Indiana Jones role, because I should add that he's after a precious stone that belongs to or, or that at least uh, Marie Laurie's father, Daniel, played by Mark Ruffalo, has in his possession. He's a museum curator and he tells Marie Laurie at the top of the series that this precious stone, the Sea of Flames, there's a, you know, there's this uh, there's this fairy tale around it that whoever has this stone will be granted immortality. So this soldier wants that. So again, very much Indiana Jones territory. Mark Ruffalo plays Daniel, the father of Marie Laurie. Um, probably maybe a little bit miscast in that role, unfortunately. Uh, the, the, he sort of delivers this strange English accent throughout that never really settles in any one territory. Uh, we have Hugh Laurie, um, who is playing the Uncle Etienne, who doesn't really get much of a look in at the start. But if you pay close enough attention to the plot and if you've read the novel before, you'll know that he is quite important to the story. So we see more of him later. Um, and then we have a couple of newcomers. I've seen uh, Lewis Hoffman, who plays Werner before, um, and he is very impressive at times. His story, in fact, again, this this young kid who's torn from an orphanage, torn from his sister, uh, uh, made to kind of go to and and suffer the horrendous abuse that he receives at this um, that he endures at this uh, at this Nazi institute uh, for young for young boys. Um, his story is is well handled and 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 well acted and and all the rest of it. With with uh, with Laura Marie, we're actually dealing with a complete newcomer here, and her story is quite fascinating. Aria Mia Liberty because she was an academic who is uh, a, a fan of the book um, and heard um, just. Through some of the people that she was working with, that cast that 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 you know producers at Netflix were looking to cast the role of Marie Laurie, and that they were looking for low vision or blind actors. And though she had never acted before, she thought, "I love this story so much." She put herself forward for it, and ahead of thousands of people who auditioned for this, landed the part. So it's a very big deal for a studio like Netflix, and also for Twenty One Laps Entertainment, which is Sean Levy's company, and he directs the series to cast a complete unknown to take a risk. And she and Lewis Hoffman certainly performed better, better. Uh, Surprisingly, than, than, than the more experienced performers in this. I think, yeah, actually the newcomers were, were stronger here. Right. And what are the things that you, you seem... Is, is it the fact that the, that you can't believe this, the, the, the Indiana Jones yeah. search for the, for the jewel that's lost? Or do you think it's all too fantastical? Yeah. Or... It's a bit all over the place. Uh, I actually watched this series with my partner and she had read the book and, and quite enjoyed the book. Um, but she was saying that she often barely recognised an awful lot of, of, mm. of the story unfolding here. And it seems as though Sean Levy and Stephen Knight, who wrote and adapted this series, it seems as though they've kind of cut through whatever that lyrical and expansive beauty was in the novel and gone straight for this oversimplified, overwritten action series um, where the characters are constantly telling us how they're feeling and what they're doing while they're doing it. And that gets 
a little bit there tiring nice after a while. There are nice moments, though, when there they're are. both listening to the radio. They don't know each other, but they're both in, she in her blindness, yeah. he in his awful orphanage. And they're getting this solace from the same intellectual beautiful talk of, yep. of, of the, the man who talks on the radio the professor those flashbacks actually work quite well it's everything that's happening in 1944 is just a little bit too messy and I think part of the problem aside from some some odd casting decisions again I don't mean to be mar- means to Mark Ruffalo he's a terrific actor he's just sorely miscast in this I think part of the problem is the people behind it Sean Levy is a comedy and action director and works and also a director on Stranger Things but that sort of genre suits him well and then with Stephen Knight coming off the back of um, uh, Stephen Knight is a, is a, is a, is a screenwriter who, who I've lost an awful lot of faith in recently I thought the last few seasons of Peaky Blinders were a bit messy Great Expectations was a bit silly um, this again this material doesn't really suit him this is more kind of this is more Spielberg territory and I can see maybe Spielberg having a good go of this on the big screen and making it you know uh, you know, do, doing it justice basically doing that original Anthony Doerr novel justice um, the series is just it's far too uneven uh, so so although some great performances in it by the younger cast members, it's just what's going on behind the scenes set that, that makes it a bit of a letdown, unfortunately. And what about the bad Nazi? Do you think that that's a bit of fun? Um, in a different story, perhaps, because it kind of gets it. It just feels as though it's from it feels as though it's from a different series altogether because, you know, we are quite invested in Werner's story and we want him to cross paths with Marie Laurie and we want the two of them to help each other and to get yes, them out of the town. Yes, there is definitely a, a difference in tempo, is Yes, there, there is. Oh, yeah. yes. So yeah. whenever Lars Edinger comes in, although he is a terrific actor mm-hmm. and usually enjoyable to, mm-hmm. to watch him mm-hmm. chew that scenery mm-hmm. and to watch him go so wildly over the top, um, I feel as though he thinks he's bringing a bit of life to it, but it just feels as though we're pausing one show to check in on another and it, 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 it's totally awkward. Okay, well, I think if you love radio you should give it a shot okay. but maybe not the whole series what do you think? Um, I think look give it a go if you were a fan of the novel but be prepared to sit there and wonder why it's so different Chris Wasser, thank you so much All the Light We Cannot See premieres this Thursday November the 2nd on Netflix Arena. We all had a fantastic night at the Arena RTE short story special in the pavilion in Dunleary on Friday last and congratulations again to John O'Donnell whose short story Mr Who won the overall prize. We have another literary event that we would like to tell you about. It's an arena special from Dublin Book Festival 23 which brings 80 events across five days to venues throughout Dublin City. On Wednesday next, November the 8th, we will be in the windmill, one windmill lane that's um, a fairly new venue in the whole windmill quarter in Dublin. There, Sean Rocks will interview two of our most successful authors, Paul Lynch and Mike McCormack. Mike's novel, Solar Bones, won most awards going when it was published in 2016, including the Dublin International Literary Award, the Goldsmith Prize and the Board Gosh Energy Irish Book Award. And it was also nominated for the Booker Prize. Paul Lynch is known for his novels Beyond the Sea, Grace, The Black Snow and Red Sky in the Morning. His current novel, Prophet Song, has been shortlisted this for this year's Booker Prize. There will be live music on the night from singer-songwriter Kriya, whose EP, The Callows, was released earlier this year. So that is a night with Mike McCormack, 
Paul Lynch and Crea at Windmill Lane as part of Dublin Book Festival next Wednesday, November the 8th. If you would like to join us in the audience, booking information is at dublinbookfestival.com. And for those who can't make it, we will, of course, be broadcasting the event live on the night. Halloween may be over, but cinema streaming platforms are still flooded with horror films. And tonight we're going to discuss one of the classics of the genre, The Exorcist, which turns 50 next month. Despite not having a single CGI effect, William Friedkin's adaptation of William Peter Blatter's best-selling novel is still considered by many to be the most terrifying horror movie ever made. Let's hear a clip from it. Yes, I'm Dr. Klein. This is Dr. Kelly. Sharon, things have gotten worse since I found you. I think you're going to come upstairs. Is she having spasms again? Yeah, but they've gotten violent. Did you give her the medication she gave you? Yes. What was that? Crazy. Well, that was Ritalin. Where's the doctors? Mother, please! Oh my God, it's still so terrifying. That was Chris McNeil, played by Ellen Bernstein, bringing Dr. Klein, Barton Heyman, to her home to see her daughter, Reagan, played by Linda Blair, who's having a violent seizure. I think it's a little more than a seizure, but Stephen Benedict, Mm. expert and film lecturer, (laughs) is here to talk about The Exorcist. (laughs) Um, So let's go back where it all started. Yeah. Blatty's book, yeah. he had an indirect route into becoming this bestseller. Yeah. It, it wasn't an overnight success. N- certainly not. No, I mean, if ever there was a case of luck and success derailing a career, it was William Peter Blatty and The Exorcist. He longed to be a comedic writer. And, and you know, way before the book was published in 1971, he was a public relations officer at University of Southern California. And then um, in 1960, he was invited on a TV game show hosted by Groucho Marx was called You Bet Your Life and he won $10,000 and with that $10,000 he he ditched his job and went to Hollywood where he hooked up with a very successful director Blake Edwards and together they made a number of very very successful comedies and that bought uh, Blatty all the way through to the mid 60s sailing on this wave of great success and then in 1967 his mother died and then he experienced a crisis of faith and it just so happened the same year that his mother died that the biggest selling book of the year, in actual fact, the biggest selling book of the decade was Rosemary's Baby, written by Ira Levin. And, um, Which became such a successful so, film, film as yes. well. And what, With Mia Farrow. De- what depressed um, Blatty even more was that everyone is reading the book and everyone's talking about the book. And what he found, just in case if your audiences don't know the, the story about uh, Rosemary's Baby. It's about young Rosemary Woodhouse whose husband Guy makes a pact with the devil where she would be impregnated and carry Satan's child. And the book ends where Satan wins and this depressed William Peter Blatty no end. And so he decided to try to write a story where good will triumph over evil. Because and he's in trauma about his mother's death. Then he correct. sees this blasphemous film yeah. and he decides to... Well, this was actually before the movie came out. He was the, it was the book he was responding mm-hmm. to. So that, that New Year's Eve in 1967, he was at a dinner party and he pitched an idea 
for which effectively was the exorcist to an editor of Bantam Books and the editor of Bantam Books was so impressed he literally bought it there and then and they were very very confident about the book so they sent him out on this big publicity tour I think it was 26 cities and he was doing up to a dozen interviews a day but the book simply was not selling it didn't catch fire at all and then Luck intervened again where he made another TV appearance what happened was he was invited on Dick Cavett's chat show at the last minute because a guest had uh, suddenly not turned up and then when he arrived at the studios the producers told him listen Robert Shaw is our number one guest but he's drunk so we've had to hook him after the first commercial which meant that William Peter Blatty had 45 minutes on the show and he steered the entire conversation around um, theological matters and God's existence and the decency and the struggle between good and evil and it was that interview that shot the book up the charts and it made the New York Times bestseller list. It went on to sell 14 million copies. And the movie was even bigger because adjusted to inflation, The Exorcist is the ninth biggest film of all time, even bigger than The Godfather. So how did the film come about? Well, um, once it became a huge success, all of a sudden the studios wanted to get involved and they approached a number of directors, very, very high profile directors, but a number of them, a lot, they all turned it down for the simple reason that they were very concerned that the entire movie would effectively hin- uh, was hinge or balance on the shoulders of a young girl. They had to cast it correctly and could they find the right girl. And so people like Mike Nichols, who had done The Graduate, a huge hit, um, said no. And Stanley Kubrick said no as well. And then it came to the... Uh, it came to was willing given given to William Peter Blatt sorry to William Friedkin, and um, Friedkin read the novel and was completely enthralled from the word go. And when his approach, I think, makes the movie what it is. Now we'll go back. We'll go to the movie in a second. But yeah. you said there that um, they were looking for a young girl, mm. and uh, it's a young girl in the book. Yes. But the story that uh, Blatty yes. set the, the, the Exorcist on was not the story of a young girl. No, that, I think that's a very, very important point to make. Uh, it was a, there was an alleged exorcism conducted in 1949 in the state of Maryland and it was a young boy. And um, uh, for obvious reasons, uh, his name was never revealed in the newspapers and any articles, was, he, was always, he was always referred to as Ronald Doe. Okay, Uh, sorry, Roland Doe. And then, in actual fact, his identity remained a secret until after his death. He died at the age of 85 in 2020, and it was revealed that his real name was Ronald Hunkler. And he grew up, thankfully, to be a very healthy adult. And he worked at NASA, where he was a high-profile engineer, taking part in the space programme of the 1960s. And he helped patent the heat shield that went on the shuttle in the 1980s. So he's a phenomenally successful career. But you're absolutely right. In real life, the alleged exorcism was conducted on a boy, not a girl. All right. But but obviously the book came then and he just, you know, had his own idea yes. about. So then William Friedkin, what did he do that made the exorcist? As you say, there's no CGI, there's mm. no huge special effects, None. but there are key things that he did to yeah. make it the frightener it is. Yeah. Um, his background was in documentary. And when he was offered the, uh, uh, the Exorcist, he had actually just come off a huge hit, The French Connection, where he won the, the director, the Oscar for Best Director. And so he used that clout to make the movie exactly the way he wanted to make it. So what he did firstly was he approached the film as a documentary. Now, I know that's going to sound crazy, but he used a documentary approach, which grounded the... I mean, let's face it, the story is completely fantastical. And what he does is he uses documentary techniques to ground... 
it down into the here and now. These are real people with real lives living in the here and now. And then what he did was, um, as I was saying to you, the, the yes, uh, because you get this this priest in Africa, isn't that yes, the, the first Iran, thing? Yeah. Uh, yes, and he has had some strange spiritual experience. experience. Yes, yeah. and then we go to America and a domestic setting. That's right. And so, uh, as I said to you, the, the anxiety that the other directors have was, you know, how are we going to cast the girl? But Friedkin was really, really astute. And he recognised that only half the movie would would we see the real girl in the second half we would actually cover her in a cake of makeup so he employed a great um, makeup artist called Dick Smith who had the previous year had given Marlon Brando the 75 year old look when he was only actually 48 or in his early 50s and so um, what Freakin then did was he knew that the audience wouldn't have to see the girl's face they would see the horror in the makeup. So that was half the movie taken care of. And the other half was the first half is that he slowly but surely sets the groundwork in a very deliberate, careful, I wouldn't say ploddy way, but he really just lays the markers down to make the audience feel really, really uncomfortable. And then the third decision I think was fantastic. Very, very strong decision was his focus on sound. And because he knew that the, the visuals would be so horrific that in actual fact, most audiences would look away or cover their eyes. But the one thing the audience can't do is close their ears. Yes, because we heard it there in that clip, didn't we? You, you did. We, we heard the, the, the voice of the child and then how it changes and then this awful voice. Yeah, and what he did there was, he, you know, his two sound designers... Uh, a guy called Robert Knudsen and Chris Newman, they actually won the Academy Award for Best Sound Design. But what they did was he engaged with uh, an actress, an older actress called Mercedes McCambridge, who recorded the re-recorded the dialogue that was originally delivered by Linda Blair and they mixed it and twisted it in two different ranges to make it really, really high mm-hmm. pitch and really, really low. And that is what makes it so phenomenally disturbing. And 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 then the all the the scenes that we remember the yeah. the the vomiting mm. the, uh, the the head spinning three hundred and sixty yeah. degrees yeah how, how, how was that through the makeup and some kinds of lim, lim, more limited special effects no there um, um, I guess anyone can make the bed jump up and down yeah but I freaking what he insisted on doing was everything had to happen in front of the camera there was never any post production where they could manipulate the picture and stretch it and all that sort of stuff. All the post-production effects are sound effects, but everything that you see was happening real in front of the camera. Now, they were using little wires when she levitates off the bed, and as you were saying, the shaking of the bed, but it's all, in inverted commas, real. Now, I say I know you say makeup and another person's voice, but Linda Blair had some performance she to, did. To, to, you know, to endure as well as perform in, the, in that film. Yeah, and I think you can look at it because she comes across at the, at the beginning of the movie as just a very sweet child. And her parents have separated, her parents are divorced and she's a little bit troubled. And that makes complete sense. And that's what I'm talking about, where the, the movie grounds itself or freaking grounded it in reality. And in so doing, he excised a lot of the script, a lot of the book. There's subplots that, you know, if you talk to a person about the book, about the movie, and you tell them what was in the book, and they said, that's a completely different story almost, because there's subplots going on about the director who's making the movie with Chris McNeil and her, um, the lady who's the au pair in the house, all these sort of things. Friedkin just jettisoned it and made it a very, very streamlined story. Now, um, it's a very graphic film and it was banned in Ireland. Mm. Uh, I think we just got to see it in 1998. The 25th anniversary of the film. That's right, yeah. Uh, right. And, and, and uh, I mean, the, 
we heard it there and we even it just uh, truncated that mm. clip because it gets very foul very quickly. I mean, it is still pretty shocking, that film. No, undoubtedly. But um, my position and my contention about the movie is that it is shocking and really foul for not for, for not for horror reasons. I think it is a horror film, but I don't think it really is. I mean, William Peter Blatty has repeatedly said when he was alive, it was like an exa- an, a, a rumination of the treaties on good triumphing over evil. But for me, Kay, I think it's just an exercise in misogyny. You know, I think it's a brutal assault of a young girl. You know, remember, as we were saying, that the, the original story, the original material was about a boy. So my question to William Peter Blatty was, why did you change it to a girl and a pubescent girl? And in the course of the film, you know, Regan is subjected to the most appalling mistreatments. She's strapped to her bed. She's tied down to the bed. She goes into enormous convulsions, as you heard in that scene. Um, uh, You know, her body is mangled into the most um, excruciating positions. She's whipped. She's lashed. Her skin is afflicted with all manner of lesions. And all her bodily fluids are treated the most repulsive manner. Like she's presented as completely repugnant. That's the sort of stuff you'd expect to go on in the medieval times, not in the modern era. And there's a particular um, point when, you know, I was saying... And are you saying that both the writer and in turn the director... Um, uh, either through their own, you know, decision or some kind of cultural. Uh, I think it's cultural. Yeah. I think I think it's cultural because my question, Kay, is, you know, could the whole plot be not concerned with demonic possession, but I think an unwitting expression of the loathing that some men, some men harbour towards girls growing up. Do some men not wish girls to remain girls? You know, and I think far from being about good and evil, I think it's an, a, an unconscious expression about child abuse. That's really what I think about it. And, you know, that came about when I was watching the film and I was the director's commentary on the DVD and Blatty and Friedkin were uh, uh, speaking specifically about a scene where the girl takes the crucifix and starts to do something absolutely appalling. And the way they described it was completely inappropriate. And I was saying to myself, are these two fellas completely deranged? There's no way, in, you know, in, in rational explanation that they could think of it in, the, in those terms. And another thing is how sexual all of Reagan's dialogue is. I find it more than a coincidence that when a movie's made about a young boy who is possessed... It's never sexualized. And he is always about power and murdering people. And th- the way that Reagan is sexualized says to me the re- movie really is about misogyny. Well, Stephen Benedict, you have definitely opened our eyes ah. for the next viewing of The Exorcist here on its 50th birthday. Thank you very much. That's it for tonight's show. The programme was researched by Paula Shields. Caro O'Hare was on sound. Ali Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator. And tonight's show was produced by Reg Luby. And John Creedon is up next. <laughs>